Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration, and information on writing, publishing options, and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint, and lots more information at thecreativepen.com. And that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello, creatives. I'm Joanna Penn, and this is episode number 494 of the podcast, and it is Friday the 19th of June 2020 as I record this. So today, I'm talking to J.D. Barker about writing cross-genre, how he came to write with James Patterson, and tips for strengthening story ideas before you even start writing, plus downsizing to become a full-time writer, which I also did uh, back in the day, (laughs) and also how Jay is a discovery writer, sorry, J.D., (laughs) so many of us with initials these days, (laughs) Uh, he's a discovery writer for the detail, but he always does the blurb first to make sure it's a strong story which I have actually done for the first time, which I'll come back to later. Plus ambition. I love JD's ambition and why indie authors can sometimes let themselves down. So it is a challenging interview. I found it challenging in terms of challenging my own way of doing things and will have you thinking about what you want your writing and publishing future to look like. So whatever genre you write, I think you will find this interesting. Since the interview, I have also read JD's book, She Has a Broken Thing, where her heart should be, which is fantastic. And if you remember the discussion on character flaws with Will Storr, which many of you loved, and how they drive plot, JD's book is a perfect example. The fatal flaw of the characters make the ending completely perfect and no spoilers, but I definitely recommend it. So that is coming up in the interview section. In publishing news, a lot going on this week, so much I had to cull it down quite a bit. But um, first up, an interesting interview in the bookseller with James Daunt, who heads up Waterstones here in the UK and Barnes & Noble in the USA. He states that sales have been sustained in lockdown, but with a very different tone. Uh, Basically, that customers are buying books they already know about and we've lost the element of discovery. So this is fascinating because what it means for, you know, authors who are not doing a lot of online discovery, which is what indies tend to do, the bookstore side doesn't work unless the books are physically there. So people, if they don't see them, they're not going to buy them. I found this fascinating because if if you are traditionally published or you want to be and you get to work with a publisher, then clearly they really do focus on that physical bookstore experience. That might be changing as we go on, but it's interesting because indies tend to focus primarily on digital and that's how we get our discoverability. So this is very interesting. I did go to our local Waterstones this week. Uh, They opened up for the first time. I took my mask but uh, there wasn't really any need to wear it because there was no one in the shop. (laughs) Uh, There were a couple of staff behind a plastic shield at the checkout but other than that it was basically just me. Uh, I picked up some books and bought them and headed out again. I did pick up one that I wasn't going to buy and then I put that on this little shelf a book quarantine <laughs> and I d- it was definitely lovely to walk in a bookstore and I bought some books I didn't know about so that really does prove the point and uh, a couple more of Bath's bookstores I, I will be heading for uh, next week as they open Toppings which is now open in fact I might even go this afternoon and Mr B's so you've got to support your local independence and um, Waterstones is a big company but Toppings and Mr B's are sort of local indie so heading down there interestingly James Daunt said Uh, he did not expect to see sales return to pre-lockdown levels immediately. Barnes & Noble in the US suggests 60% of business would return. He said being down 40% is the worst anyone has done and he cautions against expecting a bounce back. One very interesting thing he said is... Evidently, it has been helped by the pandemic, but things have turned around for Nook. (laughs) The perception that I am anti-e-books is wrong. I am very in favour of them if I can sell them, and I have not been able to do that in the UK. I consider the ability to sell e-books to be a great strength, and the company had stopped investing in Nook. That will change. We will make Nook very much part of what we do in the US. So, Wow, this is big news, which is why I've put it at the top. 
basically back in, I think it was 2015, I had a meeting with some people from Nook in the UK. And essentially then like a month later or something, they said, right, we're done with the rest of the world. And they pulled everything back to the US. And that for me was a sort of nail in the coffin. And as we've seen, Nook has not been, you know, going to America and you walk into a Barnes and Noble and Nook is nowhere to be seen. But this is interesting because this means that things may well change I'm very positive on that. Well, I feel positive on it. I think that we really need more challenges to Amazon. And, you know, I've certainly been focusing on Kobo and Apple in recent years and kind of completely ignoring Nook. I am on Nook, but I haven't done any promotions other than obviously if you do a book bub or whatever, or a free booksy, bargain booksy, that still has some sales on Nook, but I just haven't focused on it. So this is really interesting and uh, positive for those of us who sell wide. Also, <laughs> one little comment at the end which caught my eye. If you remember Elliott Advisors, which is this investment kind of head fundy company, bought both Waterstones and Barnes & Noble. And he says of that, Elliot will still sell us, but perhaps a bit later than might have done otherwise. So, and that's uh, when they bought up these bookstores. They also bought Wordery from Bertrams during the lockdown, and which increases exposure. So presumably everything will be sold as a package at some point. But it's, it's very interesting to remember that this is still a company that aims to make a profit, kind of buying down on their luck companies doing them up and then making a profit from them. So very interesting news and uh, let's think positive about Nook. (laughs) Then the newly formed Black Writers Guild calls for sweeping change in UK publishing as reported by The Guardian. More than 100 writers sent an open letter to the industry including Benjamin Zephaniah whose poetry I have loved seemingly for a lifetime. I remember hearing him way back when I was at school and have always loved his stuff. Uh, Mallory Blackman, OBE, who was our children's laureate here in the UK for several years and whose books Noughts and Crosses is a TV show. Historian David Olusoga, who who I really like, and such famous Brits as Sir Lenny Henry. This includes a call for more representation across the spectrum of publishing, from agents and editors to sales reps and people in marketing, as well as in senior management, quote, to guard against pervasive racial inequality, but will unearth more talent and help nurture a thriving literary culture in this country. And this is this is really brilliant. And although in a way, it's sad that these great creatives have had to form a separate guild. I also totally get it. And it is not, uh, obviously, it's very different reasons and much more entrenched societal issues that have caused this. But it's also a similar reason to why Orna Ross founded the Alliance of Independent Authors back in 2012. And I remember this, I was with Orna when she went through this, setting it all up. And basically, at that point, all the other writing organisations, pretty much all of them, there were very few, probably romance writers and some of some of the genres, you know, enabled it. But it was a lot of the writing organisations here in the UK, authors, associations, etc, excluded independent authors. So we had to set up our own group, which of course is now a huge international movement. And ironically, most of the writing organisations now are saying, oh, we're open to self-publishing authors in some way. And so I absolutely get why the Black authors would set up this Black Writers Guild. And I actually think it's a really good idea. And with the backing they have, this will be a powerful force. And I'm really, I look forward to seeing where this goes, because what happened with the independent authors as we've seen, things have become, if not equal, but at least there is a voice and uh, we are stronger together. That is really important. So I'm excited to see where that goes. And uh, I mean, (laughs) maybe even we can be supporters of the Black Writers Guild, even if we're not black. Uh, I don't know, just a thought. (laughs) But anyway, I'm really, I think I'm just really pleased about that. And uh, these are some great creatives. Links in the show notes as usual. On the Alliance of Independent Authors, they have released the ultimate guide to rights licensing for indie authors this week on the self-publishing advice blog. And based around the book, Selective Rights Licensing, Sell Your Book Rights at Home and Abroad, and also includes a series of videos with authors who have had success in licensing, plus a more of a teaching video from Judith Anderley, who is the business partner and wife of Michael Anderley, who many of you know from 20 books to 50k. And Judith is a force of nature. Like, seriously, I wish I could hire Judith. (laughs) 
<laughs> she does all the rights licensing for their company, LMBPN. So that is worth checking out. Again, links in the show notes. And uh, and on, there is literally so much going on this week. Smashwords, Mark Coker did a roundup of the impact of the pandemic. It's pretty long, so I won't go into it too much, but a couple of things he mentioned is he said more print sales will go online and the benefits will not be equally distributed, which fits a bit with what I was just saying about what uh, Waterstones have seen. It does say that traditionally published authors typically have a stronger brand awareness than indies. That's only true for well-established traditionally published authors. Obviously, someone's going to buy a James Patterson. Obviously, someone's going to buy a Lee Child or a Nora Roberts over somebody they've never heard of. They might have picked that up in the bookstore. But actually, I think I think it probably goes that traditionally published authors with a brand name will win, as they usually do. (laughs) Then indie authors who know how to do online discovery and the people who will probably suffer most are the traditionally published authors who do not have any online discoverability or an established brand name. So this is this will be interesting. Mark does say overall ebook sales will increase. We've definitely seen that, but also the ebook subscription services will gain in popularity, not just Kindle Unlimited, but also Scribd, also Kobo Plus, and definitely some interesting things in that area. Mark's suggestions for an action plan include commit to digital. Now, I really hope you guys, listeners of my show, would have done that by now. <laughs> but if you have backlist stuff you need to get into ebook, digital audio, print on demand, then get it done. I certainly have been holding off on doing the audiobooks for the Matt Walker books, but now the trilogy's done, I'm really looking at what to do with that what uh, those ebook um the audiobooks. So that is happening. So yeah, commit to digital. Also he says, uh, maintain diversified distribution so your next meal isn't dependent on the algorithmic whims of a single retailer. Of course Mark has been a proponent of wide for many years because he owns Smashwords, but also because he's an advocate for the author. And uh, Mark started out as an author, still does write some books. And also build a marketing platform you control, which means migrating your readership to your private author newsletter so your relationship with your readers is not mediated by third-party retailers and social media platforms whose business objectives are rarely aligned with your own. And this is very much the empowerment of the author, empowerment of the creative message that I always talk about. So I definitely agree with a lot of what Mark says. And again, links in the show notes or that's at the Smashwords blog. So in my personal update, we tested negative for COVID-19. <laughs> Thanks to all of you who emailed and tweeted. And um, it wasn't that fun a test to do if those of you who've had it. I mean, basically, you have to stick this swab ra- around your tonsils, which makes you gag and then you stick it up your nose and it makes you sneeze. Uh, but it was good to get the negative um, test. So I think, you know, it's funny, a lot of people have just been feeling generally crap in many ways and I think part of it's just lockdown ennui (laughs) and my dad was saying it's just like every day is a day it's not Monday Tuesday it's just day 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 and uh, yeah so interesting times still we are not out of the woods as yet even though things are sort of opening up everywhere what else a map of the impossible is currently with my proofreader so I finished my last edits I've done I've also done this week a number of sessions on the outline for Tree of Life. And I wouldn't say it's an outline. I'm going to have to come up with a a word. But for the first time ever, I have written the blurb for Tree of Life before starting the book, before doing any writing on the book, as in in the chapters. I've done some writing around thoughts and some research and everything. But this is what J.D. Barker recommends in the interviews. And it really helps you nail down the point of the book and where it's going. And also, uh, I've been getting much more into character development. So, I've never had a problem with plot. Plot is not the issue for me. It's more about positioning and also the depth of character and making sure that some of these arcs work without me having to do these massive rejigging things later on. So I've been enjoying it so far. I feel like I'm champing at the bit. Like I feel like I could sit down and easily write 5,000 words, 10,000 words because that's how much is in my head. But normally what happens is... 
I get to 20,000 words and then I have to stop, (laughs) figure out the next bit. So this is quite, it's interesting trying to tweak my process a little, but actually getting the blurb done early is great because what I'm going to do is set up my pre-order. Now, what I normally do with pre-orders is I only set them up when I finish the first draft because only then I know what the book is going to be. But by at least doing a blurb, I can set up the pre-order. So I'm going to set up that pre-order for Tree of Life sometime in the next week or so. I've also been working on my JF Pen brand. I've had a couple of sessions with uh, friend, author friends and also a professional sort of brand person around what to do with some of my books and where I fit. And this is, <laughs> the, the in quotation marks, the curse of the cross-genre writer. One, it's great fun because you get to do everything you want, but two, it makes it more difficult to position yourself. And what is nice about this interview with JD is that he basically says, well, I'm embracing cross-genre, I'm just doing that. And I kind of, I still feel the same way, but I do have some things that I'll be sharing more in, in coming weeks. I've talked about this a lot more in my author business plan course which you can find at uh, thecreativepen.com forward slash courses and a lot of you are taking that at the moment so I hope that you're feeling that's useful and really the last decade the 2010s were all about building my non-fiction brand into a strong business and the 2020s I feel all about doing the same with my fiction brand JF Pen. So I'm not rushing, I'm taking it slow, I'm kind of revisiting everything and I feel like my craft is, obviously we can all improve our craft, but having written like 17 novels now, I feel like I know how to write a book, I just need to tweak and learn from some things to make everything work together in more of an ecosystem. So that is fun. Also, useful stuff this week. I'm going to do a Facebook Live, so depending on when you listen to this. (laughs) But Friday, 26th of June, 5pm UK, 12 noon US Eastern. Join me at facebook.com forward slash the creative pen and I will answer your questions on writing, publishing, book marketing and making a living with your writing. I will probably have a gin and tonic after five o'clock on a Friday, that's all right. (laughs) I'll post the recording on Facebook and also on the blog the following week if you can't make it live, no worries. But that will uh, be coming up. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Lots of people tweeting me and laughing and writing comments, recognising their own editing issues <laughs> after last week's show with Chris. Heather C. Button says, finish listening to the interview with Chris Spizak. Can't stop grinning at how my characters grin. <laughs> Great tips. And after I fix my structure, I'm going to be looking at the highlighting technique. Sarah Louise says, just listened. Some great self-editing tips. I laughed when they talked about winking. I'll be removing all of those from my work in progress. <laughs> Hannah says, this is absolutely brilliant. So many things here challenge me as a writer and an editor, especially the part about macro editing. And that is you know, arguably the most important thing. Megan says, breaking down the editing process into actionable steps has been one of my biggest challenges. This conversation really helped me bridge some of that gap in my mind. Thank you for this incredibly useful chat. And finally, Emily Reynolds says, I gobbled this episode up on my morning run here in Maine. Perfect timing as I finished the last chapter of my first novel, 12 years in the making. Well done, Emily. I've got to say... That is a great achievement. I, I, will, I have an interview coming up with Lindsay Baroka, who now is known as one of the most prolific and successful independent authors around. And Lindsay's first novel took, I think it was seven years. So still a little bit shorter than you. But just to say, Lindsay is like a machine these days. I mean, a very amazing machine. <laughs> so that's just to encourage you. The first novel often does take a lot longer than the subsequent ones. <laughs> and uh, lovely pictures as well from that run. So today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon, to those long-term supporters and those new to the show. Did you know that you could support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the extra Q&A audio around 40 minutes, sometimes longer, when I answer patron questions and talk about more personal things. So it's like a little community, a subset of the show. You also get the backlist questions so you can binge more audio and learn lots along the way. So yes, I do have corporate sponsors on most shows and they pay for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time is supported by my patrons. It also plays an emotional support role. (laughs) 
After over a decade, my patrons proved that the show continues to help on your author journey. I mean, goodness, what are we on? We're into year 11 now, which is kind of crazy. And uh, you guys make me want to continue. So if you find the show useful, consider supporting the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. And thanks for the new patrons this week. Casey Ryan, Rachel Ambag-Shear, I hope I said that right, Mark Gredler, Wilhelmina Ulmar, Val Andrews and Anthony Tilt. Uh, I really do support, support? <laughs> I really do appreciate your support on Patreon. I really, 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 really do. Okay, let's get into the interview with JD. J.D. Barker is an award-winning and international best-selling author of thrillers and horror. He's also the co-host of the Writers Inc. podcast with Jay Thorne. Welcome, J.D. Hey, Joanna. How are you doing? I am good. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. But let's start. Tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. Oh, geez, that's actually a pretty long story. So I'll go back all the way to the beginning. So when I, when I was in college, and this is in Fort Lauderdale in the early, I graduated in 89. You know, I was I was amassing all this student loan debt. And I wanted to work in the music business. That, that was my initial goal. So I got a job working for RCA Records. And I was essentially a glorified babysitter. So whenever they had a famous recording artist show up in Miami or Fort Lauderdale, I'd have to pick them up at the airport and get them to their hotel and get them to the radio station for their interviews and, and kind of chaperone them around town and, and hopefully get them back on the airplane without losing anybody. And, and to really date myself, this was people like Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and oh, New wow. Kids on the Block, Madonna. <laughs> Then a bunch of hair bands. I had Guns N' Roses and Bon Jovi and Poison and Skid Row. If I managed to get everybody from Guns N' Roses back on the airplane without anybody getting arrested in Fort Lauderdale, Miami, it was a win. But, you know, I was with these people for, for days at a time and I had this student loan debt that was piling up. I'm like, well, how can I make money from this? And then I realized, well, I could interview them. So I started interviewing them while I had them in the car because it was a captive audience. And then I would write up that interview and sell it to Teen Beat and People, you know, Teen People magazine and Tiger Beat and all, all these, you know, magazines back then. You just rehash the same interview and sell it over and over again and that ended up um, landing me a job working for a magazine called 25th parallel which only put out about four or five issues but we had a, a cool group it was founded by the the editor of circus magazine one of the the other guys that they hired straight off the bat was and basically became marilyn manson i don't want to throw his real name out there but you know back then he wasn't marilyn manson he was thinking about becoming marilyn manson but you know i that's where i really started getting my writing chops together and when you work in newspapers and magazines in that world you quickly realize that everybody's got a novel at some stage of development in a desk drawer somewhere. You know, it's, it's 500,000 words. They've been working on it for seven to 10 years. It's almost done, you know, and, and they need some help with it. And I kind of became the de facto guy to go to for that sort of thing. And initially it was just, you know, grammatical stuff, just fixing punctuation and, and little grammar things. But then I started weighing in on more developmental ideas. And then it became a, a full-time career. I was working as, as a ghostwriter and a book doctor. I would basically take one of those novels and I would tweak it. And, and I did that for 20 23 years. And, and over that time frame, word just kind of got out. So I would get calls from agents, like an agent would, let's say, have a book from a, a new author that an editor wanted to buy. And it was really close, but not quite there. You know, they had to cut, let's say, 40,000 words out of the book or something silly. And the author was too close to it, so they couldn't do it. So the agent would send it off to me and I would end up doing it. Or I'd work really closely with an editor. An editor would buy a book and they didn't have time to run all the edits, so they would get it to me. Sometimes we had authors that were published, you know, a couple of New York Times bestsellers that just had too tight of a schedule where they couldn't finish the book they were working on. I had mentioned in a couple interviews, uh, you and I just talked about it off the air, but I've got a form of autism called Asperger's. And one of the cool things about that, it is actually allows me to mimic other people's voices. So I can read a novel that somebody has started and I can essentially finish that novel and keep their voice intact. So I did this for 20 some years. And during that time, I had six different books that hit the New York Times bestseller list all with other people's names on them. And that gets really, really old after a while. So the, the sixth one hit up and we were in Fort Lauderdale. This was, I think, around 2012. My wife pulled me aside and she knew I wanted to become a full-time writer. And at this point, I had done what my parents wanted me to do. I finished college. I got a real job. I was a chief compliance officer for a brokerage firm, which is as horrible as it sounds, but it pays really good. And we had all the trappings of that. We had the big house. We had cars. We had a boat. So she knew I wanted to be a writer. We couldn't just walk away from that because we had to pay for this lifestyle. So she you know, came up with this crazy idea. She said, let's sell everything that we own. I've got family in Pittsburgh. We'll buy a duplex, live in one side, rent out the other, and get our monthly expenses down to as little as we possibly can and then figure out where we are. And we did that. We bought the duplex. We moved in. And about two, three weeks later, my wife 
pulled the, the bank statement out of the mail and she showed it to me and she did some quick math and she's like, okay, looks like you've got about 18 months worth of savings to make this writing thing work. Go. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So then I, I wrote uh, Forsaken and it, it just kind of took off after that. Wow. I love that story. And I love that so much. You have so, such a cool background. Everyone's like, wow, you met John Bon Jovi. I still like, I'm still in love with John Bon Jovi after <laughs> Many, many years. I still listen to Bon Jovi songs. Don't tell anyone. Um, oh, we, but, we, we um, do too. It's, it's one of the few things my daughter, my daughter's two and a half and, and we've got Amazon echoes all around the house and she'll go up to it and she'll be like, Lexa, play Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. But um, also like kudos to your, to your wife. I mean, I actually did the same thing. And I uh, although I suggested it to my husband, I was like, for me to become a full time writer, I have we have to sell everything and move to and downsize so i think that downsizing is a really really good thing <laughs> my my amazon echo is playing bon jovi right now just because i said <laughs> alexa stop oh, oh that, that was a lot like, <laughs> <laughs> all right she's oh. being quiet now okay cool okay so let's uh, come back to the writing under your own name and we're going to circle back to the book doctor thing but i first heard about you when i read dracul uh co-written with daka stoker and uh, i used to write in the london library where bram stoker did uh his writing oh, wow. yeah and i used to see the book there and i love horror so and you include the supernatural in many of your own books as well so what draws you to darkness in your writing it's what I read, you know, it's, it's what I enjoy reading. And, and ultimately, I think I'm writing the books that I would like to find in the bookstore that just aren't there yet. I think that's what it really comes down to. It, it's become a sore spot between my, my agent and I a little bit because, you know, my, my thrillers are the ones that really sell well. Those are the big advances that, you know, where, where people really know me by. But, but I enjoy writing horror and I, and, I, and I keep bouncing back and forth, which she hates. But I got some advice from some really cool people at the beginning of all this. I reached out to, to Dean Koontz and he told me that early on in his career, he got tagged with the, the horror label. And he said he spent 20 some years trying to get that label off of his name because he didn't want it. So he advised me to, if I was going to do this, try and find some type of common denominator between all my different books. So I'm not necessarily a thriller writer. I'm not a horror writer. I write suspense, which tends to, to bridge that gap. James Patterson, a guy that I'm writing with right now, he, he brought up kind of, he had the opposite problem. Like he, you know, his first book didn't sell hardly at all. And most people don't even know the name of it. His second book was Along Came a Spider, which was a huge hit. And then he turned out four or five other books, you know, very similar in, in theory with a serial killer, you know, Ebo and, and the same type of storyline. And then he tried to – he had one called, geez, When the Wind Blows, um, about a girl with wings. And that that did not go over well with his fan base because at that point, four or five novels in, they expected a particular book from him. So he gave me basically the same advice you know, that, that Koontz did. But from, from his standpoint, he said, you know, don't write the same type of book. If you're going to bounce back and forth, do it from the beginning. Grab your fans from the different audiences. You know, find that common thread and, and they'll come along with you. And eventually, you know, if, if you pull it off, you know, they're buying your book because it's a J.D. Barker book, not necessarily because, of, you know, what it's even about anymore. You know, and if you think about it, like the biggest names out there, you know, Stephen King, Dean Koontz, James Patterson, you know, like I will buy any of their books without even reading the back of book blurb because, you know, they've delivered time and time again. It's it's they become a genre almost by themselves. So, you know, I, I've got lofty goals. That's what I'm shooting for. Whether or not I actually get it, you know, who, who knows? But that's, you know, I'm reaching for that that gold brass ring oh, i'm glad you said that because i also like you i mean i have an action adventure thriller series i have a crime slash horror series i have dark fantasy i have some other books that could be horror that kind of you know and and i i struggle because some days i'm like i should just knuckle down and just write thrillers and then other days i'm like no like life's too short i want to do what <laughs> i want to do so basically you're saying that you've decided jd barker writes suspense i just find suspense is not a word we use in the uk it's not well, used <laughs> well it works here in the u.s and, and one of the things that i found i've got a i've taken a lot of classes on marketing and there's something called an information loop so if, if you put out a certain message so to give you an example if you read my wikipedia page it says that i'm an author of supernatural thrillers um, or suspense thrillers right at the beginning and a lot of my interviews are where people write about me they quote from that wikipedia page 
So I tend to put that thought into people's heads. And and it seems to be working. I mean, I, my agent is getting ready to go out with my latest book, which is a full-on thriller. And she's taking out to people that, you know, had, had just looked at my last Supernatural book. And they seem to be, you know, kind of melding together a little bit. And honestly, like, I, I don't think I could pull off, you know, having multiple pen names at this point. You know, like, back in the, the 70s, I think it was easy because, you know, like, I, I just did a review of a book called uh, Roadwork that Stephen King wrote as Richard Bachman back in the early 70s. You know, it had Bachman name on it. You know, back then, all he did was slap somebody else's picture on the back. You made up a fake bio and you send it off in the world. There was nobody, you know, out there to, to think twice about it. But now you've got to create social media profiles. You need websites. You have to do interviews as all these different people. Like I, I have enough trouble keeping the voices in my head straight without, you know, having to throw multiple names out there. But there are people that do it, you know, but I don't know how. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult. And if you think about, you know, just like J.K. Rawlings with the J.D. Robb thing, you know, like she put those books out and they did OK. But as soon as people figured out who that really was, that's where, when they started to sell. So in my mind, like, why bother? Or I'm sorry, Nora, Nora Roberts and J.D. Yeah. Roberts. Nora Roberts, J.D. Roberts and Galbraith, Robert Galbraith. But it, and it's interesting because right, yeah. I love Robert Galbraith's books. I love Rowling right. as Galbraith, but I also loved her uh, Casual Vacancy, which she wrote as Rowling, but it was in the voice of Galbraith. And it, she got so much hate for that, she kind of had to change her name because to escape that branding. But it's um, so interesting, all of this. But I, what I want to get back to is the book doctor thing because you have sure. so much experience. Um, on the Writers Inc. podcast, which I highly recommend, that you do with Jay Thorne, um, you're talking, you're helping Jay with the process of taking his fiction further. And you talked about the premise and putting together strong ideas before even writing. And that it was great to hear you talk about this. I'll link to it in the show notes. But can you talk about this process? Like, I have lots and lots of ideas. We all do, right? Like tons of ideas. How do we decide which book to write next? What ideas to put together? And how do we improve the story before we even start writing? Well, I'm in a, a different place now because now that my books are selling, I'm actually selling books on spec, which means I've got a contract with a publisher and I've got a PDF document that has basically like a backup book blur for the books that I'd like to write. You know, I've, and I've got probably a couple hundred or so on my phone, like just different books in different stages, just little notes here or there. But I've whittled it down to about 10 that I'd like to write next. And, you know, from a genre standpoint, they, you know, they're very similar to what I've done. Um, and we let the publishers decide. And, and it's not my, necessarily my editor that makes that decision. He takes that back to the marketing people. And they're like, you know, a year and a half from now, because that's when the book's really going to come out in the traditional world. You know, which of these books do you think will be the most marketable? So that's kind of how it's decided at, at that point. What I was doing with Jay is I, I personally feel like I, I, I think being a pantser is, you know, the way to go. And obviously this is a you know personal preference kind of thing. But Stephen King and on writing, he points out that if he doesn't know where the story is going, the reader's not going to figure it out either. And, and I, I'm totally on board with that because when I read books that you know were plotted heavily with an outline, I can feel that, you know, that structure already there. And I think it's just a subconscious thing. The writer is, you know, because he knows exactly what's coming next, it comes across in the writing. And it, it's subtle, but it's, it's there. But I do think you need to have certain elements of the story in place in order to, to pull off being a pantser. You you need to, you know, know, know the gist of your story. So basically that back of book blurb. If you can drill it down to even a tagline, that's that's even better. But just something that you can put in front of you. And, and I read it every day for whatever book I'm working on. I read that tagline or that back, back of book blur before I type the first word, uh, but something that's going to keep you on track. The next thing I do is I, I create my characters. And once I have my characters together, and, and when I say create a character, like I know them inside and out. Like Sam Porter is the lead detective in my 4MK series. I could put him at the, the entrance to Disney World, and I could tell you what ride he's going to go on first. Not necessarily something that's going to end up in a book, but it, you know I know him as well as I know my best friend. And that's how I feel you as the author need to know your characters before you should start writing, because you're in their head. You're you're communicating their thoughts. You need they that needs to come across. Thomas Harris is a great example of this. If you read uh, Silence of the Lambs, he very he seldom uses dialogue tags, but you can tell just from the dialogue who's speaking through that entire book. And that's, you know, again, one of the, the goals that I shoot for there. So you need your tag, you need your backup book blurb or your idea of the book. You need to know where your characters are, who, who they are. And then you can basically drop them at the start of the story and go. Personally, I like to have a beginning, 
um, an ending and something that's going to happen in the middle in mind, you know, as I'm writing. And I think that keeps my subconscious on track. I, I, I tend to liken it as like a straight road. You know, you've got your beginning down at the bottom and you've got your, your destination as the ending for your book. And it's okay to kind of go off the road a little bit and go off into the weeds as long as you get back to that road. And as long as your subconscious knows how the story is going to rent, going to end, I think it's going to eventually get you there. And so that, that's how I tend to do it. But, you know, as a book doctor, I've worked with people that have, you know, basically they, they've worked across every different aspect of this. They've been on heavy outliners, you know, to the point where they have a 200 page outline before they start writing other people that just have a couple sentences in mind. They have a rough idea where they want their book to go. So I've worked with so many different people that, you know, I, I personally just kind of took the little bits of the, you know, what I felt was the best from each of their systems and kind of threw it all together. So, but coming back to that back of book blurb that you create, like all these little ideas. See, my idea list, which has like is out of control, is lots and lots of one-liners and tiny things that need to be put together into a blurb. And like you talk there about the back of the book. So everyone has an idea of what that's going to be, some kind of, like you say, tagline, and then something that's going to draw people in. So how do we write that? How do we take these little ideas and bits and bobs and write that back of the book blurb that you're talking about? Well, I, I tend to expand on it. I, I use a program called Simple Note, and you could do this with anything. Simple Note is just a note-taking document that it's on my phone, it's on my Mac, it's on my iPad, and if I make a change on any one of them, it automatically updates all the other ones. So I, I'm, I'm like crazy adverse to paper. I hate having piles of paper all over the place, so I do everything on there. But I'll have one Simple Note document for each book I'm working on, and as I come up with those snippets that you're talking about, I'll drop them in to that document wherever they fit in, in the story. So it is kind of like an outline, but it's not as stringent of an outline as as other people. I'm working with Patterson right now. So he's, you know, a strict outliner. And when we first sat down, you know, I, I brought that up. We were at lunch in, in Palm Beach. We decided we wanted to work together and we came up with some ideas. But I said, listen, I know you outline. I don't. I, I don't like working with an outline. Um, if, if we're going to do this, I, I think we're going to have to do it without one. And, and somehow I, I have no idea how I did it, but I convinced him to, to write his first book without an outline, you know, through his entire career. And we had a crazy fun time doing it. You know, like it, I would create a scenario and try and paint our lead, our character in some kind of impossible situation, and I would hand it off to him, and he would not only get that character out of that impossible situation, he'd you know volley it right back and put him in an even more difficult one, and say, "Here, here, JD, your turn, you try." And we just we went back and forth like that through the whole book, and we knew how we wanted it to end, but we didn't know any of the, the middle stuff. Now the downside to that is probably forty to sixty thousand words ended up on the cutting room floor. When you're a pantser, a lot of stuff gets gets tossed. So we started working together on a second project together, and and that one did have an outline. So I got to see, you know, his method, and and it and it does work. But we didn't stick to the outline 100. percent And I think that's where the real difference was. You know, if if I had an idea that took the book off in a different direction, he was cool with it. You know, the outline was just a framework. It was more or less just a suggestion. So yeah, I just kind of feel it out. I mean, at this point, he's got me trying to create an outline for a book because he still thinks that that's the way to go, and and I'm I'm trying to do it because I think if I can get to that point, then I could probably successfully write two books at the same time, like one in the morning and one in the afternoon. One of the things I took away from Dean Koontz, like a lot of pantsers tend to have a lot of drafts. You know, they've got to go back through that book over and over and over again to get it right. Koontz only writes one draft from beginning to end. So he sits down in the morning and he rereads what he wrote the day before and he edits it and cleans it up. And then he starts writing as soon as he hits that last sentence and he just keeps going and he adds like another two to 3000 words to it, sometimes five or 6,000, the guy's a machine. But when he hits that last word on the final page, he's done with that book. And I think it's because he's editing as he goes. He also told me that years ago, he used to outline. He did that for the first you know, 10 or 15 books. But the first book that he wrote without an outline was his very first bestseller. So that told me a little something, too. But again, like everything comes down to personal preference. You know, what is going to get you as an author over that finish line? Because I've seen many people try to write a book and, you know, they'll say they're a pantser and they're, they're working on their novel. And, you know, like I said at the beginning of this, you know, I'll pick it up and they're at 500,000 words, no ending in sight. You know, and they're, you know, we, we've been with those characters for, for seven or eight years of their life and they don't know where they're going with it. And that's the downside really to pantsing. And I think that's why you have to have that backup book blurb. You have to have, you know, a rough idea where your book is going to end in order to get there. Mm. 
Oh, you made me feel better because I feel like I am a discovery writer, but I do kind of know the beginning and the kind of the end and then a couple of big scenes in the middle in my head. I just haven't written it all down as an outline. So you've you've made me feel a bit better about that. But I, I do, I'm going to have to ask I, uh, about this. I, I didn't prompt you with this before, but you're, you're mentioning some really big names, some of the biggest names in the industry. And I know people are thinking, how does he know these people? So, and you could, like, um, I know you're an introvert. I'm an introvert too. You know, we talked about Thriller fest off the air and I find meeting people especially famous authors who I've been reading all my life and I kind of hero worship really nerve-wracking so how (laughs) what are your tips for networking with people who we kind of hero worship (laughs) I I honestly think it comes down to the Asperger's thing my my wife says that I'm fearless because I I will try anything I will approach anybody you know unless there's a restraining order in place they're not going to keep me away Stephen King I I just I I got lucky there when I wrote Forsaken my first novel I had to explain where the wife buys a journal so just to get the book done to get that last page on paper I wrote that she walked into needful things and bought it there you know Stephen King's store fully expected to have to change that and my wife who's way smarter than me she read it and she's like no let's just get his permission to use it well how do you get King's permission to do much of anything turns out he had a house that was maybe 10 minutes from my mom's house down in Florida so we printed up the manuscript hopped in the car and figured well we'll head over to Steve's house he's probably outside gardening or something you know we'll, we'll catch him if he's in a good mood you know he'll glance at the manuscript give me the thumbs up and we'll be on our way it didn't quite work out that way <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you're in Florida he lives on a, a what's called a key it's basically an island right off the oh, main do coast key. <laughs> Yeah. It, well, he lives on his version of, of Dumarquee. If you go over a little one-lane bridge, it's the kind that swivels in the middle. And if you make a left, you go to the public portion of this island where the beaches are and the restaurants and the bars and all that kind of stuff. And if you make a right, you go to like the entire half of the island that he owns. And there's immediately a private drive sign and then a no trespassing sign. And then there's there was a gate and another gate. And we're like maybe a half mile into this drive. And I'm looking up in the trees thinking a sniper is going to you know target us. And I'm like, this is a bad idea. We, we, we need to try something else. So we went back to a little restaurant. Um, and I called a friend of mine um, that I had known for years, a guy named uh, – he wrote under Jack Ketchum. He passed away a little while ago, but his name was Dallas Mayer. I, I called him up and told him what we were doing, and he was a real good friend of, of King's. He said, yeah, don't stalk Steve. He hates that. Here's his email address. Just send him the book. If he likes it, you'll hear back. If the book is shit, then you know he probably won't contact you. Just leave the guy alone. So I did that, and then I ended up hearing back from King, and he, he gave me his thumbs up. And you know, I've just kind of hit him up over the years via email for writer advice and, and kept in touch that way. And Dallas, the guy who introduced us, you know, that came about just through a, a relationship. I used to get a newsletter about horror writers. Uh, and years back, I think this was like maybe 92 or 93, he had put a, a notice out there. He needed help getting some files from a Mac to a PC. And this was way before even Windows existed. Mm. Um, so I, I knew how to do that. So I helped him do it. And, I, you know, we kept in touch over the years. And I think that's why he helped me get in touch with King. With Koontz, I just I sent him a fan letter. I, I was trying to get uh, blurbs for Fourth Monkey when it was coming out. And I sent him a copy of the book with the a letter and then he emailed me back and just kind of kept in touch patterson was the same kind of thing i sent him a copy of fourth monkey and and he actually called me to give me his review which was weird because <laughs> you don't normally expect to hear james patterson giving you a review i thought it was my buddies kind of playing a, a joke on me till i actually started talking and then you know he knew i was from florida and invited me out to lunch and that's how that whole thing happened i just moved to new england in, in new hampshire and dan brown lives right down the street so i sent him a copy of my latest book you know with a little note saying hey we just moved to the area and he invited my wife and I out to dinner at his house. Yeah. Well, the, the, the gist of it is, is you, you have to, you have to f- do that. Like you have to try, you know, you, you mentioned Thriller Fest at the beginning. If you're at Thriller Fest, you're going to be around some very famous names, but only for like a minute. You know, you might be in the elevator with Lee Child, you know, so you've got two minutes to make your pitch. So you can either stand there and stare at the numbers and watch them tick away and watch Lee walk out the elevator when it's all over, or you can say something. And the way I see it is worst thing these people will do is, is say no, but at least I tried and to try and fail, I think is way better than, than to not try at all. So I, I'm a firm believer in that. Oh. So yeah, just you can't be afraid to reach out to these people because they've all been where, where we are. You know, mm. Dan Brown wrote um, Da Vinci Code, you know, sitting in a, you know, between a washer and dryer. Mm. And I love that. I really appreciate that advice. And I, I don't know whether it's because I'm English or, you know, you just don't bother people ever. Don't bother people. Well, you, <laughs> you're way too polite over there. I know. We're super <laughs> polite. Like you see somebody famous and you, like you just don't, you don't even look at them. You know, like I was sitting next to John Cleese in our local restaurant and you don't even look. You just carry on. But I love, I love that attitude. That's really well, interesting. Think- 
I think a lot of that came from back in the RCA record days when I was doing that job I was telling you about because mm-hmm. I was in a car with famous people and like they were like that, you know, at the very beginning, the first time Madonna hopped in my car, you know, like that was crazy, you know, to see her stepping out of a private jet and then to get into the car with me. You know, this is somebody that I knew from videos and like they're not real people at that point. But I think because I rode around with them or I was, in, you know, and just hanging out with these people for so long, they became real people because I saw them going to McDonald's for lunch. Not Madonna. She would not eat McDonald's. But, you know, just doing what normal people do. You know, and, and when you when you see that side of them, I think they become, you know, it takes it down a, a, a notch and you know, takes mm. a little bit of that shimmer away from them. And, and not that that's a, a bad thing, but it, it makes them human. Yeah. Well, really interesting. I, I wonder the other thing, the stigma of self-publishing. I, I want to come to that because I, as as much as I love Thriller Fest, I've been going since like 2012, something like that. And I felt very much in those early years, the stigma of being an independent. Now you've started out indie, you've moved into tra- traditional, you're kind of hybrid, you do all kinds of things. What What are your thoughts on what's the current publishing environment and how you've managed to navigate both and, and what are your thoughts on it right now? Well, I think a lot of it's merging and, and I totally get what you're saying. You know, back in 2012, even 2014, when Forsaken came out, you know, I ended up self-publishing that because I didn't get the right deal. But I, I sold about a quarter million copies, which put me on the radar of the traditional guys. You know, when they see you making those kind of numbers, they, they want a piece of it. And, you know, see, you kind of have to weigh everything. I mean, from my standpoint, like I had I, I had to weigh the dollars with Fourth Monkey. I got a seven figure advance. You know, when it, when we added everything up, there was a TV show and a movie attached. We, we literally hopped in. the. I got a call from my agent. I was out on a run and she said, hey, we just got a preemptive offer from the UK for one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. So I ran back home real quick. I told my wife we were going out to dinner. And by the time we got to the restaurant, we were at eight hundred thousand and by the time we left we had broken seven figures so i could have still i I perfectly i had plans to self-publish that novel and i could have but knowing that that kind of payday was in my future i I knew that that would secure my position and be you know where i would be able to write full-time and not have to worry about you know anything else anymore i could just you know that would be my focus so you know in that case i pulled the trigger on it but for me it comes down to a financial decision and and what is that publisher going going to bring to the table that i can't do my latest book we'll use that as an example or actually my last Two, the Six Wicked Child, which was the third book in my, my serial killer series, uh, my latest book, She Has a Broken Thing Where Her Heart Should Be, I self-published those in all the U.S. territory, the, the English-speaking territory, so the U.S., the U.K., Canada, but my agent sold all the foreign rights to those books to the you know the regular traditional publishers, so Random House and HarperCollins, those guys have it in other places. And I think as long as you can turn in a product where it's on par with what you know they expect, you can do that kind of thing. Like every book that I write it goes through the ringer. I, I, you know, I have alpha readers. I've got beta readers. It goes through a professional copy edit. It goes through a professional formatting all before I send it to my agent. Because when it lands on an editor's desk, I want them to feel like they're reading a finished product. I don't want them to see something that, that is a, a job is going to be work to them. I want them to see you know something that is as polished as it possibly can be. And if you're going to indie publish or self-publish, I think you need to do that. You, you have to remember who your competition is. Your competition isn't other self-published authors. It could be. But in my world, my competition is Random House. It's HarperCollins. It's the books coming out of these the top five. So I try to make sure everything I do is on par with that. And, and I think as an indie author or traditional author, you, you need to do that. But like I said, I, I think the worlds are, are blending together. I think it's becoming less and less clear, you know, which which side that you're really on. And if you do it right, the, the reader will never know the difference. Every book that I put out, I put it out as a hardcover, an audiobook, softcover, mass market paperback a couple months later. You know, I follow the same model that I see that the big guys do. And, I, and I've got distribution through the same channels that they do. I, I use Ingram Spark for hardcovers. I've got a, a distribution through, deal through um, Baker & Taylor, which is another big one here in the U.S. They handle most of the libraries. So even from a bookseller standpoint, like they don't see a difference. They, they don't realize that I'm even self-publishing these titles anymore. And, and I think that that's important because I, you know, like I, I get BookBub every day and I always go through it. When I see something that I like, I'll load it up and look at the Amazon page. And if I see that it's only out there as a soft cover and as a Kindle book, I'll usually pass because that immediately tells me it's a self-published book and in my world you know the author didn't take the time to put out a hardcover or put out an audiobook you know people like all these different formats and if you want to get the largest possible reader base you have to satisfy as many people as possible i'm so glad you said that i also am doing hardcovers now as well as paperback i do large print as well which is a good uh, library Mm -hmm. format and audiobook and the rest you know so it's really good and i feel the same way like i feel it looks professional on your page to have 
have all of these different formats, which many traditionally published authors don't have that anymore. They don't, you know, don't get hardbacks. But I want to come back to the the, the craft again because your books ha- are standing out from the crowd, as you say. You're you're getting these deals. What are indie authors doing wrong? when it comes to story, like particularly in the genres you write in, how, you know, how can you tell the difference and how can we lift our game to that level? Whether, however we want to publish, I still think we want to lift our story game to the level of the top selling writers. So how can we do that? I, I honestly think a lot of indie authors don't take the time to, to really get the book done. You know, they, they finish the book and they, they put it out there, but they, they don't go through some of the steps that I mentioned. They don't get a professional formatter. They do it on their own. They don't get a copy editor. They either do it on their own or they ask another writer friend to go through it. You know, these aren't expensive things to do, but they but they make a big difference. And if if I pick up a you know an ebook and I start reading it and I see typos and I see errors, you know, I'll usually put it down because I just I, first of all I don't want that stuff. In my head, I don't want you know grammatical errors in my brain because it'll start coming out in my own writing before I realize it, just because I'm reading it. But if you know if, if the author didn't take the time to do those things, then you know they didn't care as much as they probably should have. And I, and I think that's important. I think also because they write fast, the story is not quite a hundred percent. Like the book that I'm writing right now, it's done. And, and if you've been listening to the, the podcast with Jay and I, you know that I've written like five or six different endings on this particular book. My agent just sent it back to me last week, and she's. Like I absolutely love it up till chapter seventy nine. You got to go from there and write the rest again, you know. So like, but I'm doing that because you know she's got the ear. You know, she's talking to editors like my film and TV agents. They they've got the same book. You know, like they're talking to people on that side, and they're all telling her what they'd like to see in this book. And and I'm not afraid to make those changes, or I guess I'm willing to make those changes. One of the other things I see a lot, I, I run into quite a bit, or I, I see people that kind of. They, they see this as an art, which it is, but they don't realize that they're creating a product. So like when somebody tells them they need to change something, a lot of times they won't do it. You know, they won't cut the, the novel down. They won't, you know, do this. They won't do that because they feel this is the book they want to tell, the story they want to tell. And that's it. Take it or leave it, which is great. But, you know, if you're, let's say, building a car and you design the car that you want and, and you know, the, the buyers are telling you, well, we absolutely love this car and I would buy it if and you're not willing to make some of those changes, you're not going to sell any cars. So you have to decide why you're actually in this business. Are you in the business to sell books? Are you in it just because you love to write? And, and all of those things are valid. I mean, I, I was writing for years you know, without anybody paying me for it. You know, it, it was my, my outlet, just like anybody, you know, probably everybody listening to your podcast. It's, you know, it's lethargic. It's, it, it, you know, it's one of those things. So if people stop paying me tomorrow, I would still write every day. So that's not an issue. But knowing that I am writing professionally and that people are buying my books, you know, I, I tweak them and I make sure I put out the best possible product that I can every, every single time. And I don't let it leave my desk until I do, even if it is painful, even if you have to write that ending 10 times. Mm. Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting. I wonder what's your thought on length? Because I feel like many of the books I read from traditional thrillers, like, I mean, you know, Dan Brown's a bad example because you know, he's, <laughs> he's an outlier. Well, let's take James Patterson. His books are shorter, but I feel like many indie authors are writing shorter books, whereas tradi- the traditionally published books are still 80,000, 90,000 words for, say, a thriller. Do you think there is a word count difference? And is that is that reflected in the depth of the writing? I mean, Dracul was very long, I, I think. I seem to remember it being a pretty long book and had a lot of depth in terms of the characters and the the atmosphere and, and all of that type of thing. So do you think length has anything to do with it these days? It does, and it's not something that I realized until I really started you know, talking to editors, but it comes down to a cost. So Dracul, for example, it's 160-some thousand words. The original Dracula was 166,000 words. After, after they cut 102 pages out of the book, the final book was 166,000. That is on the high end. Most most traditional publishers really want to see a book that's like 80 to 100K at this point, especially as a debut, you know, if you're, if you're going out there for the first time. My last book, She Has a Broken Thing Where Her Heart Should Be, was 206,000. And because I self-published that, you know, in a lot of these territories, I realized how that length impacted the cost. And unfortunately, it meant that I had to put the hardcover out there for, I think it's at $39 in in a lot of the territories, just in order to, you know, more or less break even. I think I make like 50 cents or something on a hardcover. You know, so it's not a a moneymaker for me, but, you know, in order to get it out there, I had to do that. So it's something I'm I'm very conscious of. But that's something that I think has changed over time. I'm going to show you something real quick. Yeah. I found it yesterday. So this is... 
something I actually bought at auction. And I don't know if you can, you probably can't see it on the camera, but this is Stephen King's actual draft of Needful Things. Oh, wow. It's, it's the page, pages off his typewriter. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I bought it from David Morrell, the guy who um, created Rambo. He used, yeah. to be a beta, he used to be a beta reader for David's Stephen King. David's been on the show. Okay. So I'm going to see if I've got the letter here because he actually touches on it in the letter. Dear David, here's the manuscript I promised you. The size is daunting because <laughs> he, he knew it straight off the bat. I don't think you could get away with a book this size. I and mean, this is 200 some thousand words, too. And I don't think you could do it in today's publishing world. Attention spans are, are too short. Readers like to be able to consume content, but they, they like it in, in small bits. You know, and I think that we're being conditioned for that. You know, like I, I find it very difficult now to just watch TV. You know, as an example, like if I'm sitting in front of the TV, I'm also on my phone mm. while I'm talking to my wife Me or talking too. to my daughter. Mm. Yeah. And like, you know, having a, like a news channel on with the scrolling ticker and, you know, like different headlines and this, like our brains are being conditioned to consume all this content very quickly in small little bits. I mean, I think it's making it more difficult to, to sell books. That being said, Broken Thing, you know, because of the length is doing phenomenal in Kindle Unlimited. Because people are getting hooked on that first page and there's, you know, almost 800 pages in that book, <laughs> you know, so as soon as I grab them, I, I know I've got them. So my page count is, is you know, I'm, I'm selling almost twice as much in there just because of the length. But if I were to try and take that book to the traditional publishers, like, you know, we did shop it and they, they wanted to see some cuts there. They wanted to see it down by about 60 or 70,000 words. And I didn't want to do that with the story. So if you're trying to produce, I, I guess the, the gist of this is because I'm, I'm rambling here. If you're trying to pr pursue a traditional deal and it's your first one, try to get that book between 80 and 100,000. That, that's just the sweet spot where they want to see you. You know, Fourth Monkey was 126. That was on the, the long side, but they were willing to deal with it because they liked the story so much. But, you know, 80 to 100 is, is where you really want to be mm, fantastic and then we're almost out of time but i did want to ask you about marketing what kinds of marketing do you do or have been successful for you in selling books Oh, I, I do everything. Um, Facebook ads, Amazon ads. I was talking to Jay about this the other day because um, we had a guest on who specializes in Amazon ads, and I honestly don't understand them. I need to. I'm, I'm trying to hire somebody to actually do that for me, and none of these people seem to be out there um, because I'm, I'm throwing money at it. Like I've got ads running like crazy, and I'm afraid to turn it off because I don't know whether or not it's working. So I'm just I'm just letting it go, and I you know obviously not good business practice, but that's that's the way that it is. But I, I tend to do all that, and I and I look at a lot of the new stuff that's coming out. Like I've been studying. TikTok like crazy trying to figure out how to market and sell a book on TikTok. And I haven't broken that that formula yet, but I'm sure it's out there. You know, Snapchat is another one. You know, like how do you sell books on Snapchat? So as these new programs come out, you know, I, I immediately run out there and get my username, whether I'm going to use it or not, just to make sure I can get JD Barker and somebody else doesn't grab it. And then I try to find some way to, to utilize it. Back when I was driving these these recording artists around, Madonna once told me that when she gets a marketing plan for one of her albums coming out, or back back in the day, I think Vogue was coming out when I talked to her she said she goes through that entire marketing plan and she looks at what they're doing and then she makes you know she makes a list of everything they're doing and then she makes a new list of stuff that they're not doing and that's where she would go out and she would hire her own people to actually fill in those blanks so i've been doing that on the book side because when you're with a traditional publisher they, they give you a marketing plan it's a pub you know like a powerpoint presentation and it's, it's usually like a thirty thousand foot view of what they're going to do but i tend to see holes in it you know, like they, they don't use BookBub, you know, things like that. They tend to not rely on bloggers or Instagram, you know, readers where I do. And, and like right now, that's that's helping tremendously because, you know, like I, I've got a new the book even now that I'm working on with Patterson. It comes out in September. Like we're hitting up bloggers for that because we can't go to stores. We can't do a book tour right now. But that particular world, you know, they're still spreading the news through social media. So they're kind of coming around. I tend to liken traditional publishers, their marketing departments as like a big cruise ship and an indie author is sort of like a little speedboat. You know, we can zip around that cruise ship and we can run circles around them. If, if you have a handle on what you're doing, you can turn a lot faster than, than they can and try new things. So if you see something as an indie author that looks like it might work, you know, try it. You know, worse, you know, like I said earlier, you, you either try and fail or you don't try at all. But at least if you fail, you know that you, you made an effort at it. Mm. No, it's great to hear that because, you know, so many people just say, oh, I just write great books. I'm like, no, no, you definitely do something. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said you do. Yeah, writing writing a good book is is just a small piece of the, the whole puzzle. Like it, it's pretty much a, it's a given at this point. The book has to be like a five star read. If it's not like I, I don't even know that I would go out in the world. There, there's a million books published every year and yours is just one of them. Like if, if it's not a five star read, if you're willing to put it out there knowing that it's got problems and, you know, you're three and a half star or whatever in ends up you know something's wrong you need to tweak that or you're gonna you're gonna be stuck in that world forever
Mm. Well, this has been really fantastic. Tell people where they can find you and everything you do online. The easiest place is jdbarker.com. Um, on, on Twitter, I, I'm JD Barker. I'm on uh, Facebook and, and Instagram and the other ones, but my publishers tend to run a lot of the stuff that, that is on those. So it, uh, Twitter and, and my website are probably the best places. And the Writers Inc. podcast with Jay. Yeah, I, can't, I can't forget the yeah, Writers Inc. podcast um, every, every Monday. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, JD. That was great. Oh, thank you. This was fun. So I hope you found the interview with JD really interesting and perhaps also challenging. It certainly has me thinking about what I want my fiction career to look like. And I admire JD's ambition and commitment. And I want to see how I can lift my game in many ways. (laughs) So how about you? How can you lift your writing and publishing game? And definitely go and check out the Writers Inc. podcast, which JD does with Jay Thorne. And Jay's been interviewing tons of very famous authors, including James Patterson. And uh, JD, also has a Patreon where you can hire him for helping with books and it's uh, really something I've put on my list um, for next year. So patreon.com forward slash JD Barker and uh, have a look at that. Right, next week I'm talking to Natalie Sisson about building a business around a personal brand, especially over the long term when things inevitably change. Natalie is a non-fiction writer. We're back on non-fiction next week and uh, she used to be the suitcase entrepreneur and then settled down in New Zealand so she couldn't be the suitcase entrepreneur anymore. Uh, So she had to pivot in many ways but her core self remained And actually, uh, this week I had a a chat with an author who had many sites, but not around her name. And we were talking about how you do things for the long term and how things change. What doesn't change is your name, generally, unless you get married or whatever uh, and want to change your name. Pen is actually my maiden name, uh, my name I was born with. (laughs) And when I got married, I actually changed it back from the name I had after my first marriage very complicated anyway and I do have joannapen.com and it points to the creative pen but my point being that having a business around your name means that it can go for a really long time because you can do anything you like with it so there's a little tip more tips next week whereas we focus on business and uh, yeah happy writing I'll see you next time thanks for listening today I hope you found it helpful You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.